welcome in from the ten directions, everyone. And good morning. Good morning, Majusunim. Malam read to us from page 136 in the chapter called Desire. And uh, there's a, an emphasis on uh, weeds choking the field and those weeds uh, being a passion, hatred, illusion, and desire. And again, honor the one who is without those. So a lot of times it's a sort of don't do this and don't do that. But if we look back in the same chapter, there are some practices that are presented. Quieten your mind. Reflect. Watch. Nothing binds you. You are free. You are strong. You have come to the end, free from passion and desire. You have stripped the thorns from the stem. It's your last body. You are wise. You are free from desire, and you understand words and the stitching together of words and you lack nothing. So on the one hand, we have all these thorns in a certain sense, but also we have so much strength, there's so much freedom innate within us, and so the practices. Let's look at the Dharma a little bit. Last week I read to you McFogg's um, definition of consumerism, and I want to just remind us, all of us who are in the midst of such a consumer culture, consumerism is a cultural pattern that leads people to find meaning and fulfillment through consumption of goods and services. So. Like it or not, we're in the midst of that kind of culture at every turn. And we are besieged by what seems to often arise in ourselves in that culture. We say they're called the three poisons. And another means three poisons, another means the clashes or afflictions or defilements. And they are greed, hatred, and delusion. And another name for delusion is ignorance, not seeing clearly. And if we look at the great wheel of life and death, which the Tibetans drew for us and used to put on the main doors of the temple, there are three animals in the very center of that wheel, which are driving everything. They drive, and one, I forget which stands for which, but it's a pig, a rooster, and a snake. And it's like they're holding on to each other's tails and beaks and, and just going around and around. And they represent greed, anger, and delusion. 
and everything comes from that. So for us to strip the thorns, we need to see then what if not that? And all of our practice is about this. So those three poisons, they're mental factors that disturb the mind and include unwholesome beliefs of body, words, and thoughts. And gradually through our Buddhist practices, we come to control and eliminate them. Now there's a little story here between a Buddha and a philosopher. It kind of puts things in perspective, I think, and very concrete and down to earth. So, philosopher, I have heard that Buddhism is a doctrine of enlightenment. What is your method? What do you practice every day? Buddha, we walk, we eat, we wash our, ourselves, we sit down. Philosopher, what is so special about that? <laughs> Everyone walks, eats, washes, sits down, etc. Buddha, sir, uh, and I like, he often says you know, to his disciple, not so, Ananda. <laughs> and this I good. not so, sir. When we walk, we are aware that we are walking. Mm. When we eat, we are aware that we are eating. We are aware that we are sitting. When others walk, eat, wash, and sit down, they are generally not aware of what they are doing. And somewhere I found in the Dharma, and I can't pick it up again, that there are 90,000 gestures that's going on all the time. And it's pretty easy not to really be aware of it. Because we get caught in my way and don't see things clearly. So, what are the practices? Well, meditation and mindfulness are the basis of all the practices. And they are, the practices generally are to shed light on all things and see them clearly. So we've got quite a lot of work to do if there are 90,000 gestures. <laughs> Fortunately, it's always in this very moment. Even that can be challenging. So the first thing, to shed light on all things. The second one is to produce and learn the power of concentration, to begin to be aware of what we are doing. Saying and thinking of what we are doing, saying and thinking is to begin to resist the invasion by our surroundings, this consumer culture, and by all of our own wrong perceptions. Sort of like a double-sided sword in a certain sense. It's surrounding us, plus we're a little blind. So the job is, uh, is worth it, but difficult. 
And then the third, so the first one, of all the practices, they are to shed light on all things, to see them clearly, and then to improve our concentration so we're not hooked by our surroundings or by our perceptions, which are not always true. The third thing is to bring forth deep insight. This is a wisdom and awakening and have a clear vision of reality. The, the three marks of existence are, uh, in a nutshell, are the true description of reality. Impermanence. There's impermanence. That's one of the hardest ones, actually. We can agree with it, but can we live with it? <laughs> and live joyfully with it. So impermanence is one of the uh, great marks of existence. Suffering is too. Sometimes we think that there's something wrong if there's suffering, but actually it's just part of our life, and we can learn how to work with it. And the third one is that is called no self, no separate self, <coughs> no isolated self that we are all interrelated, interbeing is the truth. And see, we have the perception most of the time that we're separate. We've really got to do it ourselves. And we miss out on the whole interbeing interrelationship. So these three great learnings, impermanence, suffering, and um, no self, are very important to understand, not just cerebrally. There is a place for wisdom to be cerebral, because a lot of times you can read the kind of truthful things like some of the scriptures, and you can begin to, huh, let me try this, let me try it, let me just digest this, let me compost with this. So there is a place for that. And then there's a place in for developing wisdom that is about reflection. We start looking at things, how they're happening. The next day we look at the same thing. We begin to be able to be a mirror, a clear mirror to see what's going on. And then of course the third part of wisdom is cultivation. Cultivation means growing the seeds, tending to the wisdom that we begin know deeply. Yeah. As we do these three things, and they're called the three great learnings, which is sila, or precepts, or morality, looking at things clearly, concentration and wisdom, we find that we gradually come to learn about impermanence, no self, and suffering. And once we have those kind of tools, Everything changes. I keep thinking that, you know, this would be a time when a lot of people who are here would be new. Who is new at the service today? Three of you. I guess all, all the students that we usually get will be here next week. They're probably <laughs> slipping in this morning. <laughs> and I decided, you know, that I would 
how kind of my, my story of coming to the temple, and then um, offer another person's reasons for coming to the temple, and uh, how they kind of fit in this. We've got a consumerism culture. Here's how we're trying to deal with it. This goes to Toronto, Ontario. I don't know, somewhere maybe around 1978. Uh, and uh, my boyfriend and I lived by in a boarding house on Parkside Drive, right near by a big park in Toronto. And um, we used to run downtown in Toronto every, uh, every Saturday morning to the market. It was a few miles, maybe three miles. And at, the, at those times, posters and flyers always had little tags at the bottom so that you could take the tag and phone on your dial phone <laughs> or your press slip to find out more about it. And we happened to pick up a tab from a flyer that said, Buddhist monk teaches meditation. And uh, so we took it and ran back home. And then my boyfriend said, well, you call and see what's going on. And I was kind of resistant. I didn't like to call, do a different thing, calling um, this monk, Buddhist monk. And he said, no, no, you call. It'll be fine. So I was very obedient. I was, I was my boyfriend, and who later became the father of my children and the grandfather of my grandchildren, but they're not together now. Um, he was very charismatic. So I was in a bind of being... Uh, kind of caught in a web with him. You know, I was, I, all, I have this characteristic that I'm, you know, somebody, I'm very obedient generally. And so if someone tells me, if he would tell me something, I try to do it all the time. And I generally have that characteristic. I think that's why I was a pretty good Zen student for a while. <laughs> Not so good anymore. <laughs> So when he was saying I should phone, then I finally gave in, and so I phoned. And uh, I don't remember the number now, uh, but I phoned, and this kind of foreign voice answered, and I said, uh, hello, I am uh, calling because I saw the flyer <coughs> in Kensington Market. We saw the flyer, and uh, it said you're teaching meditation, you know, when does it start? And um, he said, 5 a.m. to 11 a.m., Saturday morning. And he said, 378 Markham Street, B2. I said, well, oh, thank you, and I hung out. <laughs> so I went to my partner, and I said, well, it's Saturday morning, 5 to 11 a.m., 278 Markham Street, apartment 2B. And he said, uh, well, what will we be doing between 5 and 11 a.m.? <laughs> and I said, well, I guess we'll be meditating. Well, you better find out. That's a long time. <laughs> she said, phone back again. <laughs> and I really didn't want to, <laughs> because it already had been an awkward conversation. And I just didn't want to have one more. But I was obedient. So I dialed the same voice. Hi, it's me. I was just calling. Mm -hmm. could, could you please tell me, you know, 
what will we be doing between 5 and 11 a.m.? <laughs> Sitting, he said. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I gave that answer to uh, my boyfriend. He said, sitting from five to, what sitting? <laughs> you know, we were sort of, this was the time before Buddhism was really very popular, 1978. You know, not many people, just very few people on the West Coast and the East Coast knew about Buddhism, and hardly any in Canada. So I, when I went to him this time, he, he said, well, and what are we going to do? And I said, sitting. He said, sitting? What's sitting? Phone him back. You're oh. not getting enough information. <laughs> not complaining, you know. He said, well, it's not my fault. It's your fault. You need to get more information when you oh. get him on the phone. Oh. So, yeah, I phoned again. <laughs> it seems really stupid at the time, you know. And then it took me another 30 years to leave that guy. <laughs> anyway. So I phoned, of course, the same Asian voice speaking English. Sun Lotus, Zen Lotus Society, it was then. I said, hi. It's me again. <laughs> I said, you know, could you please, what, what is this sitting? And he said, he virtually yelled on the phone, Sitting! Just sitting! <laughs> and hung up. <laughs> so, do you think you would come if I acted like that when you called here? <laughs> so I went back uh, to my boyfriend and told him, so he didn't say, you know, I should phone anymore. <laughs> but we did, that next Saturday, turn up and he had a, I forget the kind of motorcycle, people always ask me, what kind of motorcycle were you guys riding? <laughs> and I don't remember. I think, it was, I think it was a Honda for some reason, but it was pretty big. Anyway, we showed up at 5 a.m. in the morning. Wasn't so far from where we were, maybe about three miles. And parked the motorcycle and went in, and there was this young, shaven-head man, white Canadian guy, Caucasian, who showed us in, and in the little entryway, there were these big brown vats of gimshi, I later earned, because they really smelled. Well, if you've ever smelled gimshi, it doesn't smell so great, especially the first time, and when you learn to like to eat it, then you put up with the smell. But anyway, that was the first, it wasn't fragrance of, of incense. <laughs> it was more the smell of gimshi. And we were shown into a seat, um, and there was, say, the seats were like, if the altar was where I am, this is where the monk was sitting. And I was kind of terrified of this monk already, you know, <laughs> because of this way uh, he had been on the phone. And then I was given a place right over there, which was with a window beside me. And I remember that window well, because it had a spider plant on the windowsill. And because we arrived at dark, I saw the shadow of the spider plant gradually come into reality before me as the sun came up and through the morning. And then my boyfriend was sitting over here. 
And we just sat and sat and sat. It was not so easy, but we had been practicing yoga, so it was, our legs were not so bad. Sometimes um, he would um, shout to sit up straight, and at a certain time we all got up and did this weird chant. It was like the one we do here, <laughs> weird, at the first time you hear it. But then it went on, because it was a longer version, and we just didn't know what was going on. Then he gave this talk, and um, I think it was about toilet paper, and um, it was hard to grasp kind of anything with my mind, you know? That, but I do say that um, I kind of really liked the sitting and facing the wall for all those hours, even though it was such a strange experience, in, in my experience anyway. And afterwards, he had us for tea on this short little table, and it had some fruit, and he carefully cut up the fruit, and uh, we had tea, and we were the only ones. I don't know what happened to the shaven head guy that had greeted us in. And uh, so then he said to us, well, how was it? <laughs> and my boyfriend, who had been an American football player, he played uh, football at, at uh, Wayne State, and, and he had bad knees. So he said, when he was asked, how was it excruciating? Because it had hurt him a lot. And for me, I, was, I didn't say anything because I didn't ever disagree with my boyfriend at those times. But for me, it was just a relief to, to just not have anything going on. And finally, for my mind to settle down, just be present with the shadow of the spider plant on the wall right in front of me. So beautiful. And he said, when he got the answer excruciating, why, what have you been doing if this is so excruciating for you? Well, we've been doing yoga because we both trained as yoga teachers. And he said, oh, that's not sitting. <laughs> so eventually after tea, and this, I think it was chairs, we got over there as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah. Even though, you know, motorcycle home, there was something that had been very compelling about it. I felt as though I got a little glimpse into how to be a freer person because I was not free in my relationship. I knew that. It was a great relationship in many ways. But I got pulled around by the nose quite a bit. In my behavior, it wasn't true behavior. I was not honest sometimes. So this was a very appealing to me that there was this thing that had happened to me through that. So the story goes, you know, that we went back over and over again until eventually we came here. I had children, and then we got divorced, and I stayed on, and he's over at the De in Detroit, has a place over there. And now, we get this, we have, the temple, I've, I've been here for a lot of years, and not by myself at all, but with many, many people to help. We are where we are today, and we have the programs and residency and things available here in the announcement. 
And we had someone apply to our Dharma Guardian program that I received, they received in the email this morning. And it says, why do you wish to be in the Dharma Guardian program? And I've really resonated so much with the answers, and I have a feeling that you might say the same thing. Even if you just came in the first time, if you've been coming for maybe 20 or 30 years. Oh my gosh, I didn't realize you were here. Mm-hmm. You, would you, you mind if I read your... Fine. Well, uh, That's from that guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> why? And it, and it means, it's a really why about why are you here? And why, do you, why might you want to deepen? Into the Dharma Guardian program. <laughs> okay. Um, why do you wish to enter the Dharma Guardian program? I would like to cultivate concentration and equanimity so that my desires have less of a grip on me and so I can truly help the other people in my life. I would like to practice meditation regularly, um, to read about the Dharma more often than I do now, and internalize the lessons to have a feeling of being centered more frequently than I do now, to make better decisions daily using wisdom and compassion, and to learn from the people at the Zen Buddhist temple. It is, um, I think, um, a beautiful expression of sincere heart that we all have. Sometimes we cannot articulate it. I mean, what I was saying, gee, I was having trouble with my boyfriend. I needed to be freer. I needed to be able to speak more truthfully. But in another different way, Magmak has said that. So, And I hope it's resonated with you. I don't necessarily encourage you to be in the Dharma Guardian program, but if you have a deep longing like this, then of course. But coming regularly, maybe even becoming members. A lot of you I see coming, but you have not taken on membership, and it can really make a wonderful difference in the process, if you do. And just the fact that you, even coming for work days, you, there's some wonderful things that happen when you throw yourself, when you turn up on a motorcycle, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> and get into a situation which is a little bit different culture, quite a bit of different culture, and then you begin to compost, and you become like a genuine, ordinary, perfectly imperfect person, all driven by a kind of sincere heart. Eh? Mm. Eh. Eh.